Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello everyone and welcome to the day. Uh, It gives me great pleasure to bring you the 13th episode of Pebble in the Pond podcast. Today uh, I have the pleasure of sharing with you a discussion I had with Richard Thorpe. If you've ever found yourself on the receiving end of a co-worker or employee's problems, it can be difficult to know how to respond and when you respond, how to do it in an appropriate way. So what if you knew there was a way to become an effective accidental counsellor? Well, this week's episode is psychologist Dr. Richard Thorpe, and he joins us to discuss how a simple counselling model can be implemented into the workplace by both employers and employees, as well as the most effective strategies to foster self-care and prevent burnout in the workplace. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening, and I introduce to you Richard Thorpe. All right, welcome, Richard. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Sam. It's a pleasure. We're really interested to hear about what you're doing with the Accidental Counselor Program and what you're up to, but if you just want to tell us a little bit more background about yourself. Okay, great. Um, I actually started off as an engineer. Wow. I studied electrical engineering in the UK, and uh, I did a master's degree in building services engineering and studied uh, building energy management uh, systems. So I was always interested in uh, solving problems, I think. I wanted to solve energy management problems. Before before there was any climate change in the 90s, um, that's what I wanted to do. But I'd always had a interest in psychology. And, and so how, how did you then go from from that into psychology? What, what made you take the leap? Well, I was working in London uh, as a consultant in e-commerce, actually, in the early days, and I found a course in hypnosis. Hypnosis was my first love, and it's still a love. And so I found a year-long course and did a diploma in clinical hypnosis. And at the end of it, I learned heaps and felt totally unprepared to practice. Yep. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to do it um, properly. And the good thing was that I got retrenched. Uh, from a dot-com company, it gave me a bit of cash, which enabled me to become a full-time student up at Newcastle University. And that's where you studied? <clears throat> Sorry, that's where you studied? That's where I studied uh, uh, psychology, and that was a 10-year road to becoming a registered psychologist. Wow. So mm-hmm. from you, you were registered, so when you finished your degree, mm-hmm. what then happened? So I finished my degree, found it hard to get a job initially, ended up working in um, uh, physiotherapy practice, so working with a lot of people in chronic pain, and um, 
workers' compensation kind of framework. And from there, I progressed into working in group private practice and then into my own private practice. And then a job came up at the university, and which was probably no surprise to most of my friends. They've seen me as an eternal student. So going back to work at a university wasn't much of a surprise. Suited you. Suited me. And uh, it's good because when you work at a university, you don't they don't give you homework too much and you get paid. It's much better than being a student. <laughs> Oh, well, that's a good distinction, uh, and that makes sense. Uh, so what's your role at the university now? So my role is twofold, actually. It's um, I'm part-time. Two days a week, I work as a counsellor, specialising in online counselling, although I do do uh, run workshops as well and do see face-to-face clients, but principally I work in online counselling and trying to promote using technology as an outreach tool to students. There's a lot more students studying online these days and remotely, so and on placements and things like that so it's really important to be able to give them access to support mm-hmm. and the other role i have is actually as a private practitioner but on the campus in the university health service so i'm a private practitioner working in with about six other gps and nurses so i'm, I'm kind of on campus doing a couple of different roles tell me about the accidental counselor the what, a- what is it yeah the well the accidental counselor took me by surprise because uh, somebody asked me uh, to develop the program and I didn't really initially know what it was and so I ended up doing a training course with another with another company um, which I didn't find suitable so I ended up developing my own program but accidental counseling if you don't know what it is it's it's basically just a way of helping a person for us at the university, it might be a student or a staff member that's experienced some level of distress. So temporarily, their emotional resources are compromised. They've just, you know, it's just been a really bad day. They might have had a series of misfortunes. It's just exceeded their coping capacity. So this is how we might, Accidental Counselor allows us to, uh, a framework to, to help them. And so it's it's for work colleagues, it's for family members, it's for friends. It, is that is that right? You could pretty much use it with anybody. It's it's like it's not mental health first aid, but in a sense, it's kind of like first aid in that you you would apply it to anybody that was suffering. Where did the need arise for this? What what, what problem is it, or what challenge is it really trying to solve? It's it's really challenge from the university's perspective. It's it's targeted at how do we how do we help. students that are in distress and who I guess it's our staff members that come into first contact so uh, lecturers teachers professional staff people on the counters student services they're dealing with the, the the students in distress they can't pay their fees they've got visa problems all these kind of problems they're the ones who are the uh, the, the front on the front line basically so they're the ones that need to be able to deal with these people in emotional situations and and they, we found that they, they weren't well equipped and what are the some of the signs of distress I guess that you know you could go either towards the the anger and frustration uh, kind of emotions it could be um, you know like crying feeling really sad feeling really low and withdrawn um, those would those would be your typical presentations or, or anxious, feeling, speaking really quickly, mm-hmm. and, and being very agitated. And so, this 
in a workplace setting, your I guess the focus with this is saying, well, people aren't equipped to deal with this day to day. Managers, leaders, fellow co-workers. Mm-hmm. Is that where the focus is, is on and that's where this is really providing some sort of empowerment and support? Yes, it's, a, it's an absolutely crucial skill set. And, you know, managers, I, I think managers are there to help and they want to help, but they're not trained. Typical management courses don't include how do, how do we help people that are in emotional distress? And it's not about having mental illness. This is not about that. This is about how do we cope with, with the human condition of being in distress? And we're not trained for it. And therefore, it's important. And it's a, it's a, it's a risk in, in a sense that it's something that, that may come up in our workplace. And some risks we're better at um, focusing on. So, you know, we, most of us in Australia learn to swim. That's a risk. Mm. So, we, so we, we're very good at training people. Most of us, uh, you know, we learn to drive. That's a risk. But some risks we, we're trained in and other risks, especially in mental health, we're not very well, um, we're not very well trained in. So we know that uh, the distress is occurring mm-hmm. in many facets of people's lives mm-hmm. in many settings. We know that people aren't equipped to be able to deal with this. Mm-hmm. And it's similar to first aid, but not the same. But you can readily apply it similarly. Mm-hmm. What pr- prompted you to say, well, I needed to design a framework around this to help people? Again, I think it comes back to my engineering background. I, I wanted to solve a problem. And I knew that I've only got, there only, I'm only going to get about three hours to deliver a program. Mm-hmm. So what can I deliver? I can't do micro skills training, mm-hmm. can't do in-depth education. What can I use? And that's why I drew on this neuropsychotherapy training that I'd done the previous year, um, which just provides such a, a fantastic framework. And it really appealed to my engineering mind to, to understand what's actually going on for this person. But it also then, using this framework, it allows us to know what to use, what's, what techniques to use and why, why they're effective. And that just makes it makes all the difference. It makes it simple. Tell us more about the framework of neuroscience-informed psych- psychotherapy. So the framework that we use is, is looking at the neurobiological needs of the brain. And the fundamental neurobiological need of the brain is safety. And you can look at that as physical safety. So, um, you know, in a war zone, obviously, you don't have much physical safety. But also, we're we're pretty lucky that we're in a a safe country, generally. Um, But then there's emotional safety, which is why people don't generally like public speaking, because people are judging you, people may be critiquing you, and it may be emotionally... uh, not safe. So that's the fundamental that we that we look in. Can we can we create emotional safety? That's our fundamental need of the brain. Now the other needs that arise out of that are connection. We are social animals and we need to have connections. Uh, counterintuitively, when 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 our safety is threatened, sometimes we will withdraw and we will withdraw from the actual things that we need, or they may not be available. So you'll see people isolating themselves. Um, so connection, really, really important. A sense of control, what we call control orientation. Do I know where I'm going, why I'm going there? So meaning and purpose. And do I have the resources to enable me to navigate to that destination? 
problems occur when we start to feel out of control that we're, and that we're out of options. And uh, this really taps into one of the previous speakers, Tony Lamontonia, is talking about job control. Uh, do, we, do we feel like we've got control? And so very, very important. And then the fourth connection, um, sorry, the fourth um, neurobiological need is, is the need for fun or pleasure and the avoidance of pain. Okay, so that doesn't always come so much into, into counselling, but we can make it a more pleasurable experience. And again, we can apply this model to actually, these are just needs of the brain, so it doesn't have to be in counselling, it can be in your life. Mm. So I could look at myself and thinking, actually, I'm feeling a little bit funky, and maybe one of my needs isn't being met. Maybe I need to catch up with a friend, or maybe I need some, uh, some more fun. Maybe I need to go and play some footy or some tennis. And if I can satisfy these four needs of the brain, then positive self-esteem and flourishing should emerge. And so the framework you've just described, mm. you use that in a workshop setting to help give people uh, awareness, create awareness for themselves, but at the same time to help other people, whether it's coaching or just being what you refer to as uh, active listening. Yes. Tell me about that. Because I read that and I thought my wife would love that, where I, where I sit there and I actively really listen and focus on one thing, which I'm not the best at. So. Yes, and, and and I've been guilty of that in the past of, uh, of, of jumping in. Men are, men are fixers. We want to solve problems, so we want to jump in with a solution. So active listening, again, is forming that connection of safety. It actually hits two things. It hits both the need for safety, so I'm not being, I'm not judging you, and it also enhances the connection because... You know that I'm listening to you, you're pay, I'm paying attention to it, and that increases our sense of connection. So oftentimes reflecting, uh, reflecting back what somebody's talking about, a little bit like what you're doing very well with me in the interview, you're doing a really good job of that. So um, if, we, if we can just stick with that, and again, a lot of people give this listening short shrift, oh yeah, you listen. But when you know that it's it's actually benefiting that person's emotional safety, that it's building the connection, then you know why it's important. And mm. it's very, very powerful even for therapists because sometimes when we feel like we're not doing anything, we know that we really are. Mm. And, and that gives us confidence that we're still doing an intervention even though we're just listening and nodding and, and feeding back a little bit of information. It's very powerful. So, so the role of active listening or... Um, being uh, sitting there and just mm. taking in what they're saying without having to think about what's next. Yes, that is how important is that in this process? It's it's huge and and it's also hard. Yeah, it's huge uh, to be able to give that person space to process their thoughts. Yeah, and and again, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get their neocortex back online so they can think their way out of the problem slowly slowly and safely and and so i think active listening gives you a great opportunity even when you're feeling out of your depth even when you're feeling like you're really not sure what to do all you've got to do is attend to what the person's saying and you're still actually doing a great intervention and when i run the programs normally i play a ted talk from a lady that um she first contacted uh, the the samaritans in the uk and then she she went through the Samaritans. She was fourteen years old. She'd been uh, she'd had a lot of problems, and she went on to run the organisation. From being a fourteen year old caller, she went on to run this 
this organization of thousands of uh, volunteers. And, wow. and she's talking about the benefit of listening. She what really, was the name of that TED Talk? Do you remember? Or her name? Cut it up. That's I, okay. We'll put it in the show notes. Just YouTube active listener, 14 years old or something. Is that how we're going to do it? Um, what was it called? That's okay. If it comes to you, we'll, yeah. uh, we'll go back to that. Okay. Uh, so what are the main obstacles with this process? What are the main challenges that you're finding uh, by trying to implement this? Um, in, in implementing the process. Okay. So the accidental counselling process is I, I'm bringing, to, I, I see it as a, as a partnership with, with my audience. And oftentimes I'm presenting this to a diverse audience. So I'm bringing the skill and the knowledge, but the audience has to fit it like tailoring to their role and to their organization because there's there's a lot of things to discuss around confidentiality policies and procedures how do we how do we actually do this and and it's different slightly for everybody because some people might be managers some people might just be um, not be managers again it it's not a a, a one a one fits all yeah. So it's really a meeting, and, and, and that's where it's not in. It's about facilitation, facilitating training and conversations, rather than just delivering. Here you go. Here's a thing. Go and t- to go and take it. That's where I see it. And so this program that initially started out as being something to help students at the university is now becoming part of something much bigger. It seems to be, yeah. I mean, I've run this now 20, 25 times across the university, across all campuses. And I guess if we can help each other, you know, if we can help staff, if we can, then we can better help students. We, we, we training uh, student organisations so that uh, the students can help uh, other students. And yeah, it seems to have, it's taken off and it's really surprised me. It, it really has surprised me how it's hidden, almost what they say, hidden nerve. Tell me about the self-care. So self-care for staff, um, because quite often they're not, I mean, we're not really mm. taking care of ourselves in a lot of situations. And we're focused on other people and trying to help or, or do things for other people. But who's really looking after you? Is that a focus of this? Oh, definitely. And, and, and uh, so I, I split it up into, yeah, how do we help the other person? But then how do we how do we make sure that we minimize the impact on ourselves? And, you know, if people are telling us um, harrowing stories, then we have mirror neurons and, and we, we're running that story in our brain and, and we can get a response from that as well. And it may even be triggering similar things. So it may be, you know, maybe somebody's had a relationship breakup. Well, we might have had a relationship breakup recently, and that can start to trigger us. So really taking care of ourselves and, and in doing that, being assertive and saying, actually, it's not appropriate that I, that I hear about, um, you know, this, this cancer diagnosis because I've got a, a you know, cancer diagnosis in my family, and, and that's just mm. that's not great for me. Mm. So being able to look after yourself uh, assertively, but then... After the session, looking after yourself and just debriefing with a with a colleague, and then making sure that you really take time um, to process and 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 again to use these neurobiological principles to make sure that you're in a safe place and you've got some connection and that you feel mm. in control. Because it's quite common for people to take other people's problems and circumstances home with them. 
Yes, and and in a sense you can't help it. You you want to the, the brain is a problem solving computer, and so it wants to keep on working on that problem. And so as I guess as a, as a therapist who who listens to these things every day, you learn you develop skills to do that, and that's why. Um, there's a big increase in mindfulness because mindfulness helps us detach from those thoughts. Mm. I really like the yoga uh, aspect, but everybody can find their own flavor of what works for them. Sometimes I don't feel like using yoga and I'll use my Xbox, you know, use what works. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, I mean, that makes sense and I'm sure everyone else can relate yeah. with that. Uh, there's no right or wrong way of doing this. It's just finding some sort of outlet as well, right? Exactly what works for you. Tell me about uh, empathy and how it's important with the framework that you that you're developing and training people with. Yeah, empathy is crucially important because it really again sets the scene for that safety. The bedrock is safety. So being empathetic uh, is is really really important. Empathy and and being non judgmental. Yeah. And so this is really difficult for people it's easy for me in my role that's that's what i do all day it's different different for other people who who may be in different roles so switching into switching on empathy is important and that's why i show people an example of putting a hat on putting a helping hat on a helping hat that takes you into a different role of of empathy non-judgment and i always say that the the antidote to judgment is curiosity so yeah. stay curious and stay compassionate or kind. And do you think that has to start from the leaders? Or is it fellow employees? Is it fellow family members? I mean, is it is the onus on everybody? Or are you finding that it's really, it's got to start from the top down in organisations specifically? I think it certainly helps if you can start from the top down in creating that that, that culture oh. of, mm. of compassion and kindness. And, you know, we're all in this together. Um, because I think this model is equal, equally applicable to, to management style. Can we make, do we want a culture of fear or do we want a culture of growth? And so keeping people safe and, and basically their brains um, optimized uh, neurologically, that's what we're aiming for. So if we can ad adopt some of these principles in management, then it's a lot easier to, to utilize, uh, to create those empathetic relationships when we need them in counseling. Yes. And with what are some tools or, or um, some things that people can do to avoid with the self-care, with burnout and just making sure that there's the barriers between their professional life and personal life? I mean, does that really ever exist anyway? Do people be able to come home, just switch off and that's it? Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Yeah, um, I think I'm pretty good at that, actually. Um... It's really, really important to, to have firm, firm boundaries. So, so coming back to um, self-care, you've got, you've got your physiological self-care. So you've got your, you need some exercise, you need some sunshine for vitamin D, you need some social connection, what we've talked about, and you need good sleep. Okay. So setting those are your foundations. And once you've got those in place, you've got to make sure that when you come home, you're putting on your your husband hat or your wife hat or your mother hat, your father hat, and you don't keep wearing that, that, uh, that job hat because that will impact on, on your whole evening, the way that your brain, where your brain is focused. So getting rid of turning the phone off, I mean, it's simple stuff and we all know it, but you've got to be disciplined with it. 
because just that one email can trigger you and trigger your problem-solving computer, and then you're thinking about that all night. Mm. And you've got no way to respond because it was a, it was a, an email from your manager, and you might have, um, you might have overreacted or misinterpreted, and you're yeah. thinking about that all night. So you're not, you're not, you, you can't respond. So, so you're stuck. So be really tight with your with your boundaries. Mm. Okay, so turning mm. phone off, mm. ignoring emails, computer when you're at home. What, uh, what are there? Are there any other techniques you've got? Um, I find putting on my Cookie Monster onesie really detaches me from um, from being professional. The onesie, I can imagine how that would look on you, mate. Yeah, That'd yeah, be pretty amazing. We'll leave that to the imagination. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just changing clothes. Yeah. So changing clothes, okay. we change clothes, we change roles. We get dressed up sometimes, don't we? And we can dress down. Yeah. So changing your changing your clothes when you get home, actually, you can almost metaphorically change your role. That's really interesting. Mm. Tell me about the the data behind what you're doing. Is there evidence? Is there uh, are you finding that you're getting feedback that this is really having a big impact? Tell me about that. Um, it's we haven't done a study on this. Probably based at a university, we probably should have done, but um, or we could have done, um, but we haven't actually done data. So it's been mainly qualitative, and I wasn't really aware because I wasn't gathering data, but the people were submitting responses to HR that ran the, that ran the, uh, that asked me to run the, the trainings. And, and the, the responses were really glowing and saying it was useful and they enjoyed it and they got a lot out of it. And so qualitative data um, really has been immense and that ended up, you know, um, I ended up receiving a couple of awards from the university, one of the highest awards, the Vice Chancellor's Award, which took me by complete surprise. Um, so the qualitative um, data suggests that it's really hitting a nerve, it's really hitting a need, and that people are feeling more confident, and they're feeling validated. Actually, that's one of the most powerful things, is that 50% of the participants say, oh, well, I feel like I'm doing the right thing. And that's really, really important. That enhances their uh, their confidence. But the other, uh, a lot of other people are saying, I feel really relieved that I don't have to become a counselor. Yeah, I can, I can do, I can do this intervention, but I don't. Um, it's not counselling per se. What's What's the plan for the future? What's uh, What are you? Where are you going to take this? What do you want to do with it? Where does it end, or where does the next bit start? Yeah. So the, the program is, is still being rolled out and I've done a train the trainer uh, in the university. And now I'm looking to really take this out into uh, the broader community with uh, non-for-profits and, and uh, corporations and other workplaces. Anywhere uh, that would like a, an intervention, a simple, a quick and simple and easy intervention that really marries in well with mental health first aid um, and, and other things that you can do. But this is it's kind of like the tip of the iceberg, but it also, I think, really, thinking more deeply about it at the conference, it really almost merges in with, with good management practice. Yes. So I, I'd like to take it out and, 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 uh, and train, train more people, train more trainers, and, and, and really expand the offering. I know you do some other things related to stress management and resilience. Mm-hmm. Is it similar to this, or is it different, or is it encompassed in this framework? It's encompassed the, the resilient stuff as again, I'm really using the neuroscience informed because I just think it, it adds it adds a layer of understanding why we do what we do. Mm. Um, 
And so with resilience and stress management, bringing in, but I bring other, other areas in and, and from positive psychology and big fan of acceptance and commitment training and mindfulness. Um, but I think also it's the way, it's not just what you do, it's the way you do it. So delivering things in a, in a friendly, in a fun, engaging environment, like it's not all doom and gloom. And, and in a practical, so so making things practical for people so that they can apply it not only to work, but also to life. These are all these are all just life skills as far as mm. I'm concerned. And we need to get these skills out to everybody. We need to get the, we should be teaching these in, in schools to kids really early on, I think. Are you saying a lot of this is, is common sense and just common courtesy? Or, or are we saying that this is, and, and the way where yeah. that lifestyles are going and, and the focus um, I guess the people with distractions is becoming so split these days that we're forgetting that human connection and interaction and general empathy and compassion for each other. Uh, how much of it is that and going back to just being people and, and treating people with respect? Yes, treat, treating us, treating each other as, as human beings and getting that connection, which were our devices are oftentimes taking us away from connecting with people as, as, as other humans. And the social isolation that I see in my clinic uh, from students and from staff, people are so socially disconnected from that, um, from other humans. And it's, it's, that's one of the biggest problems in our communities on, on campus and off campus. Um, people are just able to hide away and watch Netflix and not interact with people. So, so getting, getting back to those, those human things, but why do we need them as humans again? Because that's the way our brain's wired. Yeah. Those those fundamental needs. Safety, connection, fun, and and you know, meaning and purpose and sense of control. It's it's not rocket science, but once we understand those fundamentals, you know, it all and, and we can say, okay, well if I tick all these boxes, then you know, we can grow. How young should this stuff be communicated, be taught, be trained for for the youth, for instance, I mean, how how young are we talking here? That I, I think I'm, I'm not a, a teacher, and I've done a lot of work with with younger kids. I think you've just got. I think we can do it, but I think we just need to translate it into their language. Yeah. Um, so it resonates. So it resonates. Like there was a oh, I can't remember the the name. There was an animated film that show, I can't remember what the name was, but it basically showed all the different emotions as characters in in a person's head. Yes, I Do you remember the one with the with the different personality styles yes. in your head that then want to act differently and yes. when they're sad. I think there was one with emotions. There was another one with there's an angry one. Angry one, yeah. So you can tie it into into kids, and I think kids would really. I think kids really love the metaphors of things yeah. like that. So yes, they would. They would. The kids would love it, um, and the teachers would love it as well. <laughs> How important is uh, is having the delivery of your workshop or the training being engaging and fun. How important is that? I, I think it's nearly everything. Yeah. Because if it's not engaging and fun, you're just not going to learn. And not only that, we use the some of the things, some of the subtle techniques that I put into the training are actually, I'm actually working on these principles. So this morning, I, I normally play, I normally play some music before I go in. Classic supermarket technique to yeah. make you feel a little bit more comfortable, and I can, you know, express my inner DJ. Um, we, I get people to do exercises around whatever you got in common. Yes. Okay, simple exercise, but why? 
because it creates uh, safety. Similarity equals safety. Rapport. Rapport. And and if hey, guess what? If we feel a little bit more comfortable around the table, maybe we'll learn a little bit more. And then we'll understand the principles. So I'd kind of weave these kind of things in to the training as well. And I think it really adds to the adds to the experience. So I'm all for it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Yes. Mm. And you want it to last beyond the end of the shop of the workshop because too often and you see it in conferences, you see it in workshops, in uni courses, mm. in in concerts or, or sorry, with um, self help people yes. as well. Yes. <coughs> Excuse me. It was where, where people just get they learn a lot of stuff and then all of a sudden they walk out the door and then everything's back to normal. Yeah, that's right. So I think that, that house model um, that I've made and, and there's a as there's an acronym called SAFER. Um, I think if, if you just take those away, oftentimes I'll just give people a takeaway. That's all you need. Go and apply it. SAFER stands for. Uh, so is a, is a framework. So we start off with safety. Yes. That's our, our fundamental. Then we've got alliance again. So we're creating an alliance, um, a, a therapeutic alliance. That's like rapport, is it? That's rapport. Okay. That's that connection. Therapeutic yep. alliance. Yeah, that that therapeutic alliance is is the number one most effective technique in psycho in all psychotherapy. Right. Yeah. So bedside manner. Okay. So how do we're creating an alliance? F stands for facilitate understanding. So that's when we're listening, that active listening. We're facilitating not not the counselor's understanding. We're facilitating the the client's understanding because when they're talking about their issues, they're actually processing in a different way using different neurological pathways. A bit like if you do therapeutic writing, um, you can you can, that can be useful too. But you're thinking about the problem in a different way. So after F comes E. E stands for exploring options. So then we start to once the brain is is thinking uh, again, we can explore some. So what are some options? What how could we solve this problem? Uh, and again, we're trying to give agency to the client. We're not trying to give them advice. We're trying to open them up to working out their problems. And R stands for referral. So who would be the most appropriate referral? Is it is it EAP? Is it a family member? Is it go and see a, a GP? Who 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 the most one? And we want to be again very uh, permissive with that in allowing the client to to understand the range of options and to choose their own. Makes sense. Mm. If we, uh, to, to ask you a question, is there something that you've previously held a strong belief on that you've recently changed your mind? Yeah, I did have a think about this one. And the one that came to mind was uh, EFT, which calls Emotional Focus Therapy. So that's about uh, tapping. You tap different meridian points. We had this uh, tapping workshop at one of our conferences and they loved it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I used to think that that was complete and utter woo-woo. And I'm a guy that does yoga and meditation and hypnosis. So. <laughs> uh, but I'm still very, very evidence-based and, and traditional. I thought, this is just that woo-woo stuff. But then when I saw the evidence, okay, fair enough. And then, then I saw that it had applications in with, it's very similar to bilateral stimulation and EMDR. I thought, okay. I, I, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, so you've been more open to that. and you've More actually, open to that. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, and that can be very, very useful for people. So They are doing some remarkable things with EFT with a lot of trauma and, and depression, and, and so it's, I mean, it's exciting to see that evolve. But, mm, um, definitely. But you're right, I guess from the outside looking in, you're seeing people tapping themselves in different spots. You sort of 
does that really work? Is that is that where you're coming from? That curiosity side of things? Yeah, that curiosity. Just... I was asking why and why does that work? And I think I've I've got a pretty open mind. I've tried, you know. Look, I've tried hypnosis, NLP, you name it. I've been I've got I've been to so many so many workshops and mm-hmm. on different things. I like to think. Uh, I, I like uh, Bruce Lee's philosophy of use what works. Yeah. So he didn't necessarily say this is bad. This is this is good. This is bad. He said use what works. Yeah. You know? And has the evidence behind the EFT been the the trigger or the, the thing for you to say, well, hey, there's something to this? Yeah, yeah, yeah there's something to it. And, and I, I don't use it principally, but I certainly haven't got anything against it. Yeah. You know? If you could go back and tell your 20-year-old self some advice, what would it be? Oh, yeah, I had a bit of a think about this and sliding doors. Um, basically, don't drink so much. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, what I wasn't aware of back then in, in the party days was, uh, the brain isn't fully formed until the age of 25. So um, I, would have, I would have taken it a bit easier on the grog and I would have backed myself, I would have had more self-belief. I think I was a, a, lot of, um, a lot of self-doubt back in those days. But who knows, because if I hadn't had those self-doubt, maybe I wouldn't have studied psychology and maybe I wouldn't be where I am today. It all happens for a reason. Exactly. Who's been the biggest influence on your life? Ah, oh, the biggest influence on my life. Well, I'd have to say my wife. Um, she's a she's a nurse, and she has um, just really taught me about you know looking after people and being kind, and and she supported me. Like you know, that was a ten year journey for me to study psychology, and she supported me all the way, not yes. just financially but emotionally. So. She just provided a constant source of support. Um, so that, that's been amazing. Lastly, what is your go-to karaoke song? That would have to be um, It's Not Unusual by Tom Jones. Oh, good one. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you're killing that. And I do all, all the right. moves. Swing the microphone and everything. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to talk oh. to you, Richard. I appreciate you coming uh, on the show and thanks very much for your time it's really interesting with the stuff that you're up to the university of newcastle and, the, and then the stuff that you're implementing down there but also where this will take you with this uh, accidental counselor is quite exciting and i'm sure the future holds some big things is there any any big things happening in the future tell us if you have any immediate uh, not for accidental counseling but there's a big thing that i'll find out later on this week so maybe um, stand by stand by but um, possible uh, phd projects mm. using uh, virtual reality and mindfulness and compassion training kids wow that's exciting yeah very exciting so again and it's almost a gestalt moment in terms of uh, bringing the engineer and the psychologist together yeah. and doing some good in good proactive things teaching teaching skills uh, where we need them. So on a number of levels, I'm really excited about that project. Well, we'll have to do a follow-up with that one and be sure to let us know when that's out and about and we'll uh, share it with people. If people want to get in touch with you. Yeah, happy to happy people to get in touch with me. My company name is Personal Best Performance and you can find the website at personalbest.co and just uh, you can write to me at uh, rich at personalbest.co. Well, thanks very much for your time, Richard, and all the best for the future. No doubt we're going to see more of you and hear more about what you're up to. So thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it, Sam. Thank you.
Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.